Well, good morning. All right, let's, uh, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you this morning for the gift of your word. And God, we thank you for this word in particular. And uh, Lord, we confess we, we need your help in order to understand it, in order to see all of its implications, in order to behold your goodness in and through it. Um, so Lord, we pray that you would send your spirit here and now. May he fill our hearts. May he help us to understand better who you are. And Lord, may he help us to see Jesus, to behold him, to cherish him and his love and grace all the more. Lord, it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, in recent years, uh, right after Halloween, and I think this is because of the proliferation of cameras at people's front doors, the internet gets flooded with videos of trick-or-treaters walking up to unattended bowls of candy and just pilfering them entirely, like taking the entire bowl and dumping them into whatever vessel they have for collecting the night's spoils. If you haven't seen them, be on the lookout. In about 10 months, I think you will see them. And typically, these videos uh, are followed by a string of comments. Some of these comments are lamenting the state of society and the hopelessness of the future generation. Those are always fun. Uh, some identify with the behavior. I used to do the same sort of thing when I was a kid. Those are fun too. And others comment on how foolish it is to leave candy unattended, especially when it's done without a note, instructing kids to only take one piece. And with that third category, with that third class of comment, there's an underlying assumption. That assumption is that without the law and an ability to enforce it, kindness or grace is going to get abused. It's going to get trampled on. Why do the right thing if no one is forcing you to? If there's no threat of punishment or loss of reputation? A similar concern has been expressed about the gospel of grace. If it's true that we are saved by grace through faith, if God lavishes his love on us and saves us because of what Jesus did for us, not because of our own goodness and not because of our continued goodness, won't that lead people then to become lax? Won't that just lead people to to sin more? Well, our passage this morning opens with Paul addressing that exact line of thinking. In verse 1, we read, What should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? This question appears to be a direct response to what Paul wrote earlier in chapter 5, what we looked at last week, stating, The law came to multiply the trespass, but where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. So then, if sin causes grace to multiply, shouldn't we just continue on in sin? In fact, shouldn't we sin more so that we can see more and more grace? This isn't a thought that Paul is even remotely willing to entertain. Quickly responding in verse 2, absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it. Or I like the the very British way that J.B. Phillips communicates Paul's thought in in his paraphrase of this text. Now Now what is our response to be? Shall we sin to our heart's content and see how far we can exploit the grace of God? What a ghastly thought. We who have died to sin, how could we live in sin a moment longer? 
See, when God extended his grace to us in Christ, it created a new reality within us, a new reality in which sin loses its power and its sway. So this morning, we're going to talk about the gift of our new life in Christ with special attention given to three truths put forward by this text. First, the fact that we died to sin. Second, that we are united to Christ. And third, that we get to, we get to walk in newness of life. So let's begin with this first life-altering truth. We died to sin. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, you died to sin. Verses one and two once more. What should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. What a ghastly thought. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Again, God, when he justified us, when he claimed us as his own, when we placed our faith in Jesus, he created a new reality in our hearts. The sin that once held us captive, that defined us in Adam, has now effectively been vanquished. We have died to it. And verses three through five, Paul expands on this point, writing, or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. The death of the old self and the rebirth of the new is symbolized in our baptism. Baptism is the entrance into into the faith and it illustrates our profound union with Christ. Baptism bears with it the idea of identification, especially when it's linked to a person's name. So when we are baptized, we are baptized into the name of Jesus, into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this is seen in other places in Scripture. So for instance, in 1 Corinthians 10-2, we read that, we, that uh, the Israelites were baptized into Moses, right? referring not to water baptism, but to the fact that they became united with him as never before, uh, as they recognized his leadership and their dependence on him. And so it is with Christ when we are baptized into him. Right? We, we, we come into union with him and, and are, achieve a profound identification with him. And this shows us that baptism goes beyond mere ritual. It represents a spiritual connection to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The act of being baptized into Christ symbolizes our dying to our old selves, which were dominated by sin, and being reborn into a new life that is united with Christ in righteousness. And the language for our union here is interesting. In verse five, we read, for if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be united, or we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. And the word translated, united here, is an interesting word. It's actually a horticultural word, literally meaning planted together. And it's a metaphor that Paul is using to illustrate how closely intertwined our lives become with Christ's. Like branches that are grafted onto a new tree, we become a part 
of Jesus, sharing in his experiences, and crucially, in his victory over sin and death. This idea is reinforced in scriptures like Galatians 3.27. For those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. We are clothed with Christ in baptism. We get to put him on. And Paul goes on to explain in verses six through seven, for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin since a person who has died is freed from sin. These verses show us that the power of sin which once held sway over our lives has been defeated. That power is broken. The death of Christ in which we participate through baptism is a death to sin itself. And just as death signifies the end of life, our symbolic death in baptism signifies the end of our enslavement to sin. We are, in a very real sense, freed from the dominion of sin. However, this death is not the end, but it's the beginning of a new life, a new way of life, as we see described in verses 8 through 10. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all time. But the life he lives, he lives to God. See, friends, in our union with Jesus, not only have we died to sin, but we have been raised to new life in him. We are now free in a new way to embark on a life of righteousness in a way that before would have been impossible. In essence, our union with Christ through baptism embodies both a death and a resurrection, a death to our old sinful selves and a resurrection to a new life of righteousness in Christ. And this transformative process redefines our identity and way of living. It empowers us to walk in newness of life, free from the power, free from the dominion of sin. Thinking about this reality got me thinking about my, my pre-married existence, um, largely how I used to eat before I became a married man. Uh, before I was married, my eating habit, I basically just, I, I ate trash. Uh, not literal trash, but not that far removed from it. Um, so for example, I used to love the 99 cent tacos from Jack in the Box. And I said 99 cent tacos, you get two for 99 cents, or at least you used to. Uh, when I worked hourly wage jobs, minimum wage jobs in um, high school and in early college, I used to think about my paychecks in terms of jack-in-the-box tacos. Right? If I work another hour, yeah, sure, it's only eight bucks, but really, that's 16 tacos. I really put things in perspective. Now, one of the things that is both disturbing and perfect about these tacos from jack-in-the-box is that seemingly no one can agree on what is actually in them. There's a, there's a GQ article about Jack in the Box tacos, and you heard me correctly. There was a GQ article about Jack in the Box tacos in which they were referred to as a wet envelope of cat food. <laughs> and I loved them. They were delicious. And then I got married. And shockingly, 
Katie did not share my affinity for such food. Instead, we started eating, or she kept eating, and I started eating food with ingredients that we could identify and even name. Even things that like grew up out of the ground. It was astonishing. And being united to her, uh, changing my eating habits over the last 12 years, it has changed me dramatically. It's changed my actual desires. I no longer want the things I used to want. I no longer love the things I used to love. I, I, I do think I'm now at a place where if you put a jack-in-the-box taco in front of me, I wouldn't even want it. It's crazy. And this is a transformation that has come from being united to a mere human. Right? Through identification with her over time, my desires have changed. Now think about how much more radical being united to Christ can be. Because in him, we don't just simply learn some new habits. No, we receive a new nature. Our old selves die and we are reborn. We died to sin and now have a new capacity for true, new resurrection life. We died to sin. That is the first radical truth we're presented with in this text. The second one, just as important, we are united to Christ. Now, this has been a theme throughout everything that we've been talking about up to this point, but I want to go a little deeper into this concept as we look at verse 11 together. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This new reality in Christ needs to be followed up with a new identity. Again, this whole text is really about our union with Christ, which we pointed out a few weeks ago when we looked at the beginning of Romans chapter 5. This is a huge theme for Paul. We see it referenced here in, in verse 11 with the phrase, in Christ. And Paul uses this phrase or things just like it 200 times in his letters. So if you've placed your faith with Jesus, you are united to him. You are in Christ. And Paul tells us that this is a reality that we need to consider. Now, this is the word that we have here. And the word translated consider here in verse 11 is the Greek word logizomai. And this word, according to one commentator, is one of the most important words in Romans. It's used 19 times in this letter. And we need to understand its meaning if we're going to understand Romans. Logizomai is a term borrowed from the world of business and finance, and it means to credit something to someone's account. And what Paul is, is driving at is this. We need to seriously think about where we stand with Christ. And then we've got to credit to our account two major things. First, that we are dead to sin, and second, that we are alive to God. Right, have you ever stopped to think in that way? That you were part, in a meaningful way, you were a part of the events that took place on the cross. That there you died to sin. And just as Jesus was raised, you were raised with him. If you haven't given this some thought, maybe now is a good time to start. And what's powerful about this word and this passage is that it's what you might call preventative theology. 
See, a lot of our focus in, in the faith is on corrective theology, like what we do when we mess up. So for example, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. These are truths that we need to cling to. These are so important and they are necessary. But reflecting on how we're united to, identified with Christ, is even more awesome because not only does it give us something, uh, give us a recourse when we have fallen, but it actually gives us the tools that we need in order to nip sin in the bud. See, this whole idea of crediting these truths to our account, it's not a a one-time deal. It's not something that you consider once and then move on from that. See, legizomai appears in this text in the present middle imperative tense. And I know all of you are thinking, yes, grammar. This is so exciting. But it is worth noting. See, the present middle imperative signifies an ongoing action. We are to continually consider, continually apply, continually credit Christ's righteousness to our account. The way Paul puts it, we should constantly be reminding ourselves that we are dead to sin, but totally alive to God, thanks to our connection with Jesus. So what does this look like? Well, when temptation arises, and it will, the call is to remind ourselves in that moment, this is no longer me. I died to this, and I am alive in Jesus. I used to want that wet envelope of cat food, but it's no longer me. But even more importantly, I used to want, I used to want this sin, but that no longer defines me. I used to be held captive to this, but that no longer defines me. And actually saying such things, whether in your head or even out loud, considering, apprehending, reckoning this truth, it does make a difference. It's actually been shown that positive self-talk can have a significant impact on various aspects of mental health and physical well-being. Research in psychology and related fields have provided evidence for its benefits, benefits like reducing stress, enhancing athletic and general performance, improving mental health, reducing symptoms of anxiety and depression. It strengthens coping skills in challenging situations. It assists in making positive behavioral changes, and it can potentially boost immune function. So when Paul says continually consider this truth, remind yourself of who you are, he is, he's giving us advice that's actually backed up by scientific evidence. Tell yourself in the situation where sin is, is, is tempting, this is who I am in Christ. Because it does make a difference. There's a, a famous story that the fourth century bishop of Milan, a man named Ambrose, once told. Uh, He tells a story about a a young man who left his hometown because he was involved in a love affair with a woman that was destructive to both of them. And so he left because he he didn't feel that he had the strength at the time to to remain there and and not continue on in sin. Well, he eventually got to the point where he felt like, okay, I'm I'm solid in my identity and and who I am in Jesus. I can go back and I don't think this sin is going to have sway over me any longer. And when he arrived back at his hometown, this woman who he had had this affair with uh, saw him, and he, she thought that he saw her, but he didn't approach her. So he's con- she was confused. He's like, well, maybe he didn't recognize me. 
So she saw him again, and she went up to him and, and, and said, hey, it's me. To which the man responded, yeah, but it's no longer me. The sin that once defined me no longer does. It is not the same me. And it's long been held that the youth being described here is St. Augustine, a man that Ambrose had a, a, a tremendous influence on and a man who God has used throughout the centuries to change people for the better. So think, have you taken and applied, considered your new identity in Christ? Try that this week when temptation arises, when whatever tempts you presents itself and says, hey, it's me. Think, yeah, but it's no longer me. I am a new creation in Christ. I have died to my sin and I am now alive in him. And when we do that, we get to walk in newness of life. Let's look at verses 12 to 13. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. And do not offer any parts of it to sin as weapons for unrighteousness. But as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. Verse 12 gives us a clear task. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. So what's Paul really getting at here? Well, Paul is, is pretty straightforward here, and he splits his advice into two key parts. First, he uses the negative, right? something to avoid. Do not offer any parts of your body to sin as weapons for unrighteousness. Right? What he's saying is don't let the different parts of yourself, your actions, your words, your decisions, don't allow those things to become tools of unrighteousness for doing the wrong thing. Be mindful And make sure that you don't fall back into the old sinful habits that you died to. It's no longer you, remember? And then Paul switches gears and he he talks about what we should be doing. But as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. This bit is about committing every part of ourselves our skills, our time, our energy to doing good things, the kinds of things that show we're actually alive in Christ. It's about making a solid, ongoing commitment to live righteously. Have you taken that step? Sure, saying no to sin is great, but it's not the whole picture. There's also a saying yes to God. Lord, I am all yours. Use my life for your purposes. As we're going to sing in in just a few minutes here, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Everything I have, Lord, is yours because you gave everything for me. And the essence of this passage is encapsulated in in two pivotal words that we see here. We already looked at the word consider. So consider and offer. We need to continually grasp, consider the reality that we are a new creation in Christ. That our sin has been nailed to the cross with Christ. We died with him. And now, thanks to Jesus, we are alive in him. And from there, we need to consistently offer up our lives to him and live out the reality 
of our belonging every single day. To really walk in newness of life. And what is it that compels us to do so? Is it fear? Is it scolding? Is it the law? No. It's grace. As we read in verse 14, for sin will not rule over you because you are not under the law, but under grace. We are not under the law, but under grace. And grace has the real power to transform. There's a movie that came out in 1999 called Three Seasons. And the movie has has several plot lines. Uh, One of them is about a cyclo driver, uh, a sort of bicycle rickshaw named Hai, uh, and a beautiful prostitute named Lon. Uh, This takes place in Vietnam. Uh, Hai is in love with Lon, but he can never afford her. He can never be with her. And night after night, Lon is with customers in fancy hotels, and every night when her job is done, she has to leave for home. She can never actually stay the night. She dreams of being wealthy. She dreams of a better life. She dreams of getting to spend an entire night in one of these grand hotels. But instead, she is relegated to poverty and the life of a prostitute. Well, one day, Hai wins a grand prize in a cyclo race, and with it comes a ton of money, enough money to make a real difference in his life. And what does he do with it? Well, he spends it all for a night with Lon. And so when the scene comes, viewers are expecting all of his dreams to come true, and he's going to have this this steamy night with this woman that he's been infatuated with for as long as the movie is. But instead, Hai tells her that he doesn't want to be with her in that way. No, he just wants her to rest and have the privilege of watching her fall asleep. And one uh, film reviewer comments, he's only purchased her a He has only purchased her a place as an actual guest in the normal world she dreams of joining. And he asks only permission to watch her fall asleep in it. Slowly, comfortably, she falls asleep. And he's gone by the morning, having demanded nothing from her except the chance to fulfill her desire to belong. But something snaps in her. She finds she can't go back to her old job of prostitution. Having experienced for the first time someone who used his power to serve her Rather than use her, she gets a new sense of her own dignity. She's not the same person. She's changed by the transforming grace of selfless love. Grace transforms. And while that is a powerful story, it is only an echo of the true story at the center of creation. At the story of the Son of Man who came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The one who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Shall we sin all the more so that grace may abound in light of this? Absolutely not. How could we, who have been united to Jesus, who have died to sin, continue 
continue in it considering all that he endured in order to save us from it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truths presented in this text, for the fact that we, when we placed our faith in Jesus, are dead to sin, that we are united to Christ, and that we get to live a new life, that we get to walk in newness of life. Father, we pray that you would help us to follow the instruction of this passage to continually consider that reality, to credit to our own account Christ's death and his resurrection. Father, help us to believe that. And Lord, we pray that as we experience your grace, as we continue to remind ourselves of it, as we reckon it, and continually apply it to ourselves, Lord, we pray that that grace would transform us. Father, help us to reflect the one that we are united to. Lord, may we walk in newness of life. May we die to sin and live to you. Father, we need your spirit in order for that to happen, so Lord, we pray that you would fill us. We need you, God, and we thank you that you are a God who meets our needs. And we thank you for the ways in which you have proven that in Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen.